Welcome to our church, as uh, Spence and Peter both said this morning. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, well, hey, our, you know, our hope, I think Peter was saying this too, but our, our hope for those times uh, that we do these stories like this is that you see some intersection, some kind of like, you know, crossing of your story with someone who's speaking up here, because we're, we're actually not that different. I think the world tends to say that you're unique, you're special, and, and we, we are. I want to like cut the legs out from that completely, but... Um, the Bible also says, I think the reality is that we're very similar. We have a lot of the same stories. We have a lot of the same experiences. And even if we don't, we can look at someone and say, well, I'm human. I mean, just basically start there. I'm a sinner. I'm human. And that was someone's experience with God. Maybe that can be mine. Or that was mine. Or that's similar in this area. And then to worship through that or to freshly approach God through it. And um, just super powerful. So thanks again, Tina. I know she may have left. But anyway, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing. Um, all right, we're going to dive into Genesis today. We are uh, plugging away through our, our series in the first book of the Bible. Genesis means beginnings. And uh, we're at the point now where it's really hard to summarize. So it's like you can get away with that for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, but it's just, it'd be a whole sermon just summarizing. So I'll just say this. Uh, basically, at this point, uh, for humanity, uh, just to summarize, you know, after God creates the world, sin comes in. Uh, that's a, a gross uh, a paraphrase, but that's basically what's happened is uh, God has made everything, is, and sin has come in, rebellion's taken place, is that, in these, la- these last chapters we've been in, we've seen this in particular, though it's the story of the Old Testament in a way, is that things keep getting worse. It's a downward spiral for humanity. And God keeps working, in one sense, expectedly, how you might expect him to in some ways, but also unexpectedly. He surprises. He, he judges. You might expect that. There's consequence for sin, but he also shows a type of strange grace and patience for sinners, really, really messed up people, people like us. Uh, so it's a welcome thing uh, to people who do see themselves in, in that fashion and know that to be true. And so we're, we're picking up in the story today in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, after sin comes into the world and God has already done some promising to undo it, he's showing patience. In fact, just the, just the, uh, just the sense that the story goes on tells us he's going to undo it. Right? Why would there be a Genesis 4? Why would there be a next chapter uh, to after sin comes into the world if God wasn't intending to do something? I mean, Genesis 4 would be this glorious depiction, narrative depiction of how God just annihilates everything, and that'd be like a period on it, and then that'd be it. And so maybe it wouldn't be written because no one would be there to, to receive it, because everyone would just be dead. <laughs> you know, that'd be the story. But God is, is patient. He shows grace. He promises to end our exile from him, to end sin and death, to undo that. But in the meantime, we, we see things keep getting worse for humanity, and we see God's reactions to that, we, which instill fear and hope, I think. And, and, and if that seems a little bit odd, that should. When you, when you have a feeling of this is a fearful thing, but this is also simultaneously very hope-giving, uh, that's, that is the Bible. You should be, you're understanding it. You're, you're hearing the stories. You're hearing the teachings. You're hearing the sermons of the scriptures right if you feel that, because judgment and grace do go together. Consequence for sin and strange passing over of sin simultaneously uh, for sinners anyway. If you don't see yourselves as sinners, it's just kind of like it's out here. It's a story. Well, that's kind of interesting. I'll kind of put that in my, my library so I can tell someone I know that story later. But if, if, we're, if it's a mirror, if we see ourselves in the people that this is happening to, then it becomes very personal, very sacramental. It needs grace imparting, very dramatic. Um, very life-changing. And so that's where we are. And so chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, is the story of the Tower of Babel. You, you may have heard of it before. If you haven't, that's great. We'll talk about it today. Um, it's, it's a dramatic story, a lot of layers to it, a lot of characters, a lot of nuance. Um, 
a lot of uh, whispers of Christ, as there always is, uh, but a lot, in, in a sense, a lot of hopelessness too, and so sometimes we're kind of left hanging. Uh, we'll allow that to happen, kind of, but then move past it uh, here today to kind of let the story to speak to us unto itself a little bit. So let's read, uh, let's read the whole thing. It is uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9 today. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down in there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confusion. Because there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. All right, so the, the, the big question today, which it usually is, or some version of this, is what's significance here, biblically, theologically, about, well, about this story, but from this point forward, how does it help tell the greater story? Remember, the Bible is, uh, is one story made up of, like, thousands of mini-stories. They'll help tell the one greater kind of meta-narrative or the greater story of the scriptures that climaxes in Jesus Christ. So, so that's the question. To help us see that, uh, we're going to look at it in two ways today, really simply, uh, the problem and the solution. So as you see in that sermon insert, if you do like to take notes, it's basically two things today, or if you just want to take it in your mind, take notes in your mind. It's two things, the problem and the solution, uh, as it's anticipated, and the solution as we kind of see it whispered here right in this passage um, as well. So let's look at the problem first, which is kind of just to walk through the passage, help us kind of smell the air a bit for what's going on here. Uh, a lot of literary devices employed, a lot of uh, interesting uh, terms of phrases that help teach theology and just kind of help us maybe laugh a bit or also um, tremble a bit. Uh, the problem is uh, basically two things, what they said, what's written here, and then what's left out, what they didn't say. So by, 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 by the absence of what they said, we, we learn a lot as well. So first, what, what did they say? They said, if you remember to go back to this, I've highlighted a few things here. They say to each other, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Now, it's possible that they were building what's called a ziggurat, uh, which uh, is a, was, was a large, stared structure reaching into the heavens built to assist people in worshiping the gods. The picture here of what that uh, looked like historically. You would actually know if this is actually what they built. It's possible that the, the battle events predated uh, when these things were built and so forth, but it's likely it was a lot like this. This is what they were building is People climb the stairs literally uh, up into the skies and they draw, draw near, drew near to God um, through the stairs and worshiped in that top area. In fact, a lot of them had painted that top uh, chamber with like an like enamel or a paint or a dye. They painted it blue to blend in with the sky to kind of say that we've achieved, we've arrived, we've climbed, we've ascended uh, to God and, and he, uh, he is welcoming us into his presence now that we've built something that that uh, turns his head and that he accepts. 
So, um, but basically that was the point, and you see that here pretty explicitly. The point is to reach into the heavens. The point is to get close to God. The point was to make a name for ourselves, to become famous, to show off our skill and our ability, which they were doing quite well, actually. In fact, it's interesting, God even says they've done something quite amazing, <laughs> narratively here. It says, nothing they do will be impossible for them. They've unified. They can speak one language. They've teamed up. They've done something quite, quite amazing here. So the, the, the first part, what they said, is part of the problem. It's, it's selfish. It's self-centered. Uh, they're looking at themselves. They're focused on their name. It's actually a big theme in the Bible is God says, for my name's sake, I'm doing this. And sometimes you see people say, for my name's sake, I'm doing this. They're not, they're not uh, compatible. Uh, to what end are we doing things? To what end are we working for our namesake or, or others? And so it's what they said. It's pride. It's selfishness. But it's also what they didn't say. If you notice, they didn't say anything about God here. And so if you rewrote this in a different way, the outcome might have been different if they were to say, we're building a structure to the glory of God by the strength he provides with his joy in our hearts. It'd, be, it'd probably be different, right? I mean, imagine if they were to say that, what, might, what the outcome might be. And that's not what happens, of course, but, but that, would be, that would be clearly crediting God and working through his strength and doing it somehow for him or, you know, with the strength he provides uh, in us. And so um, the point there is, is to say that the point of the story is not to say every skyscraper ever you built was done in sin. Like, God does not hate skyscrapers, you know. Some of you are architects, it's like, you know, and like buildings. It's like, it's not, he's not anti-building here. That's not the point. It's, it's the spirit by which they built. It was, it was their hearts that, that were particularly evil. The heart behind what they were doing, that was, that was the problem. So, the indictment then is pride in humanism. Striving to be like God in spite of God. Striving to get to God in spite of God or a godless type of self-sufficiency, which, which is really the heart of sin. We've been seeing that throughout the story uh, so far. Things that you might not say at face value are bad. But God says bad. They might say good, and we're, just, we're, not, you know, we're not doing something evil here, but God is, God is kind of pronouncing judgment because of the heart behind uh, the good thing. But really what it tells us is that pride in humanism is central and that people are still trying to climb the ladder. Humanity's always been doing this. Uh, it, it's a removal of God from the throne and putting our towers, our structures, our ladders, our amazing works at the center, climbing them and saying, God, here we are. So they're not atheists. The, the whole point of these buildings was to worship. They're very, very spiritual, but in all the wrong ways. So just because we're spiritual, just because we believe in God, doesn't make us saved, doesn't make us okay. It's actually quite the opposite. Uh, most people in the world are theists or deists. They, they believe in a God, but they approach him wrongly, or they believe they've approached him wrongly. Because the Christian God's very distinct. And so we'll, we'll talk, about, talk about that. So moving on, verse 5 uh, is kind of the climax of this passage. There's a, a, a chiastic center. If you know what chiasm is, it's kind of like uh, passages or psalms or stories like this are mirrored. And so there's a center that kind of serves as the top of the pyramid, uh, builds, there's a statement, then it kind of builds down this side, mirroring this side, but Anyway, you don't have to know what that means to understand this, but it's a chiastic center here, uh, which is verse 5, which says, God came down to see the structure, which, it, which is uh, intended to be humoristic, also a little bit maybe uh, fear-instilling, uh, and also a bit of a judgment wrapped up in that one verse. It says, he came down to see the structure which the children of man had built. In other words, the tower's not that great. Uh, the mention of children here as well, I think, indicates that in the grand scheme of things, 
in terms of doing its job reaching up to God, it's childlike. It, it's not unlike maybe a person would, a human being would look at an anthill and have to kind of come down to appreciate its intricacy. You know, it, it's, it's not that great. In terms of, if the ant's trying to get up to like a human level, it's not that great. Uh, you know, it's, it's small, it's vastly short of its goal. It'd be like a bridge extending one mile from New England into the Atlantic Ocean, seeking to cross over into England. You know, we'd say, beautiful bridge, pretty amazing, but not really, right? It's kind of it's like that. God had to come down. It was an epic fail by humanity, epic fail. And from their, and from their vantage point, it was a pretty beautiful building. And in one sense, it kind of was from a human understanding, but in terms of doing its job to get up into the heavens, epic, epic fail. God had to come down. So it's meant to be this literary device of showing how they fell flat on their face. So then he confuses the language. He scatters them. Judgment ensues. Uh, verse 6 to 8, again, it says God is saying this to himself. He's a, he's a trinity, one God in three persons. So sometimes it says, he says, kind of let us do this or something like that. So that's what it's saying. Behold, they're one people. They have all one language. It's only the beginning of what they're going to do. Nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. And he says, so therefore, come, let us go down to them and, and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So God dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left, this is the key, they let, it worked. They stopped building. They left off uh, building the city. So the judgment then was dispersion, right? And it's from God and others. Remember that theologically when people are dispersed from each other, it's always, never with exception, a picture of being dispersed from God. We can think about it separately, but if you want to be biblicists or think biblically about it in the way that God intends, we can't do that. Uh, God disperses us from himself first through sin, but then he also, there, there's problems kind of relationally amidst humanity that reflect what's going on here vertically. And so, which is actually really kind of a powerful thing, it might not always feel great to experience that, but again, in, in the Bible's eyes, to experience a problem between people is to see with your very eyes, very tangibly and physically, a spiritual truth. And that is, that's happening between you and God because of your sin right now. And that's the grand scheme of things. I know for Christians it's different. That's not true anymore. But just saying, like, in the grand scheme of things, as we understand all of our stories, whether it's past tense for us or present tense, we get a picture of that. So next time you have that, think about that. You're actually supposed to. When you have a problem with someone, you have enmity, there's conflict there. It's because you have conflict with God. There's no, you can't, there's no such thing as having a separation there or a reality of human conflict without the divine. And so the divine's upstream. We've sinned against God. We've been exiled from his presence. And now because of that, human dispersion here um, as well. So that, and that's the, so that's the judgment here is God disperses them, confuses their language. This is actually where languages came from. There's only one language up to this point in history in the world. This is where all the world languages came from right at this moment. God creates them, gives some to some people, and they can't speak, and they find people who can speak that language, and they go and establish countries and nations and, and so forth. So, but I want you to, before we move on to the solution here, to remember that judgment is dispersion, but what was judged? The judgment's on the heart. These people here aren't sacrificing a bunch of children. They're building a building. It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to do. Just It's morally neutral, at least the act of building the building. God's not judging the building of the building. He's not judging the architecture. He's judging the heart behind it. 
It's actually a judgment on religion. It's a, it's a judgment on ladder building. It's a judgment on, on human beings believing they can ascend to the heavens by being good people. That's what's being judged. That's what's being confused and interrupted because God loves us and he wants us to be saved from our sins and that's not the way. So, so this is an indictment on all other world religions except Christianity, which is anticipated, breathed into the story here in, in typical fashion in the Old Testament, but it comes in really into history later through the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the judgment. It gives you an idea of what's going on here a little bit more and the layers of uh, the problem, the judgment, uh, how, the consequences for what's, uh, what's occurring here. And, and so forth. So now let's, let's talk about the solution, which is, again, closely married to the problem always. Your understanding of the problem, remember, is always going to feed into your understanding of the solution. So what you believe the problem to be, and you'll say, well, God says I'm going to fix that problem. Well, then you know what the solution is and how he's going to do it. They always go together. You can't, like, have something disconnected here. It wouldn't make sense. It's a logical flow, in other words. So the solution or the hope, at least, and I'll talk about it was a little bit different, um, here in chapter 11, in some ways there isn't one. There's, no, there's not a lot of hope. <laughs> it's supposed to be a passage about judgment in, in a way. It just ends on, and then they left off from the city. God confuses the language. It ends on a bit of a sour, a sour note. We have to look to the New Testament for the explicit solution uh, in one sense. I'll come back to 11 here, but John 11. But we look to the New Testament for explicit solutions in passages like this. Ephesians 2.13, this is the gospel for us today. It says, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, who've been dispersed, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so this idea, which is present in a lot of New Testament letters, it smacks of Genesis 11. Dispersion happens, and now through the blood of Christ, reunification happens. Person to person, but especially uh, person to God. We've been brought back. It's interesting here, it says, the blood of Christ did that, right? didn't just atone for our sins, which is true. It did that. But when it did that, it, it ended the exile as well. It brought us back into the Garden of Eden. It, it undid the problem of the Tower of Babel passage in Genesis 11. Then also Acts 2.6, interesting uh, spin on things here. It says, this is after Jesus died and rose again for our sins, for our new life, and he ascended to heaven. He sends his spirit on his apostles to preach the first Christian sermons, to evangelize the Jews who were there for this pilgrimage festival called Pentecost. And they were there from all over the region, men and women who spoke different languages as Jews. So in the context of that, it, God, it says that God miraculously allowed them to speak different languages that they didn't know beforehand, so that all could hear in their own language. Acts 2.6 says this, it says, men from every nation under heaven, so Jews from everywhere, gathered for Pentecost, were hearing the apostles preach the first Christian sermon to them everywhere uh, in, to them in their own language. So what this signifies to us miraculously, and this doesn't happen, of course, every day. Uh, this would be a miracle that happened again, and, and it does happen. You hear reports of this happening miraculously around the world from different types of missionaries and groups and things like that. So I think God can still do this. But it's a, and this is going to be finally there when Christ returns, but it's a glimpse here. In Acts 2, it's a signification that we are becoming one with humans again. The language confusion of Genesis 11 is being undone through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? And so it's not only that we can understand each other again, uh, whether very literally here or kind of spiritually uh, as different kinds of Christians come together again and love one another, understand each other, 
But what's upstream from that? I mean, if, if it's true that there's no more linguistic barrier between human beings in one sense, if there's a whisper of that here, then it's also saying, by extension, that we can understand God's voice again. When he speaks, we can get it. We understand. John, what does John 10 say? Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. See, without God miraculously intervening linguistically and allowing language barriers to be crossed through his son's bloody body on a cross, removing all barriers, and then after that, bringing linguistic reunification like this into history, without that, we'd never understand or get along with other people, but then greater, on a greater level, greater so, with God. And, and so it's wonderful truth that God is doing this. I mean, apostles didn't manufacture this, right? God is allowing reunification to happen, and, and the, the curses of Babel are being, um, the confusions of Babel are being undone by the gospel of Jesus Christ. People are coming back to God. And so, so in one sense, the, those are two quick solutions. There's a lot more to say about that. I want to move on to something different here today and some, spend the rest of our time there, but to, if you pick up any academic commentary or listen to like 20 sermons on Genesis 11 online or something, they're probably, most of them anyway, are going to hit on those things as I did, and we should. Those are end caps to what's happening in Genesis 11. Christ is the solution to the problems in that regard. But we go outside the passage to get them, right? Acts and Ephesians are New Testament letters. So in another sense, so going back to the question then, um, what's the solution? We look outside the book, but in another sense, I think there's a glimpse right here in Genesis 11 as well of God working in a particular way. Uh, there's a narrative thing going on here that, that tells us about him and, and gives us a hint of a certain characteristic or maybe groups of characteristics of him that would come to a head in Christ later on. And that is, and you see it in verses 6 to 8, without actually saying it, you get a sense, sense about, maybe some of you got this when, when I read it, if it's the first time you've heard it or not, a sense about God and how how he's facing these people up in verses 6 to 8. And the idea here is, uh, or the good news is, I'll just, say it, I'll just state it here to begin. Um, the good news, the hope here, is the theme of God caring enough to save people from themselves. The theme of God caring enough to save people from themselves. Uh, it's, if this is part of what the gospel is, it's really good news. I'll explain more about this as we go. So we say people are saved from our sins, we also believe we're saved from ourselves and our constant, constant propensity to rebel against God and to not, um, kind of going back to Tina's story, it's just we all have that story of that constant, I don't like this message, I don't want to believe it's not about me, I don't like the idea that I can't do it, I don't like hearing that, that I can't approach and, um, and that's, that's all of our story, it's, it's the same, uh, same kind of kind of thing. The good news is he saves us from that as well. So it's not unlike if you were here for Genesis 3, that chapter a few weeks back or months back, it's not unlike, remember that part in the story where Adam and Eve sin and then God, they're expelled from the garden. God protects them from coming back into the garden to eat from the tree of life so that they won't live in a sinful state forever. Remember that part of the story? He, he sets up angels with uh, cherubim with flaming swords to guard the way back to the tree of life, God says, because I don't want them in a sinful state to be eternal with that fruit. So it's kind of simultaneous. You have judgment, expulsion from the garden, but also a little bit of grace in that too. Uh, even death. Death is judgment. It's, it's the consequent. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says, but also the fact that they die because who wants to live in a sinful state forever? 
right? So even death, there's a little bit of whisper of grace there. They just simply go together in the Bible, strangely, uh, inexplicably in some sense, at this point in the story, and Christ resolves this, but it's just kind of weird. And so in the spirit of that, we see it happening, I think, here again in uh, Genesis 11. Here, what he's doing in Genesis 11, he's scattering them, judgment, so that they would have to stop their pursuit of reaching the heavens, grace. He confuses their language, judgment, so their effort to become more like God would fail, and hopefully they'll look elsewhere for salvation, grace. You see that? It's God's like a genius here. It's, ma- it's masterfully exerting two types of characteristics, justice and mercy and grace, simultaneously at the exact same time uh, for the sake of uh, his, his people here. He's interrupting their skill and ability, essentially, their potential. And I just want to pause there for a second to mention that. This is a bit of a sidebar, but um, to make sure this is heard. God will do this at times. Not all the time in your life, but there are times he will prevent you from being good at something if you're trusting in it for your salvation. And if that's happening to you, if you discern that, your first and ultimate thought should be, God loves me so much. He loves you so much to not let you go down that road and build that tower and say, look at me the rest of your life and then go to hell. It's amazing grace, you guys. Incredible. It's painful in the meantime, and it's disciplinary. It's like a parent to a child. Don't child understand what's going on? Wait a minute. It's disciplinary, but it's love. And this doesn't mean it's wrong to be good at things or to excel or to strive to, to accomplish things in life. That's great. God can get a lot of glory in that too, and his grace can be in that. But it's a heart issue. There will be times this will happen. It's a clear, unavoidable motif in the scriptures. He weakens people so he can be their strength. He brings difficulty so he can be the solution. He will do this. I promise you it will happen. Some, at some point in your life, it hasn't already. He, because he lo- I, I'm saying this, I, I know this because I know he loves you guys. And he's not going to let you go uh, that far. And he may let you succeed, but don't trust in it. Uh, it's going to be like slippery little whatever, bad metaphor, right? But slippery thing uh, that you can't hold on, like ice or something in your hands. It's just going to slip out. And so um, don't hold on to it too tight. And, uh, but God does love, love us, and there will be times he will. If this is paradigmatic, right? If this is a, a paradigm of the human experience, and it is, then we should expect that to, uh, I can say it's already happened a lot in my life on a number of levels. Um, sickness-wise, uh, professionally, otherwise, um, he has kept me low so that he can be my high. He can be my strength. I think, Tina, you were saying that, I forgot, first service, second service, that um, I'm weaker, but I'm actually stronger because he's my strength. We can't be Christians without that mindset. If we're strong in our own eyes, we're instantly not Christians. We can't, it's, it's like oil and water, we can't be. We come to the end of ourselves and say, only God can save, not me. He saves me from my bad things and from my good things because my good things were saviors. There are many saviors. I was my own savior in that. He died, he bled for those things as well. That is the gospel. It's not just like an option. That, that is what we pronounce. It's good news. Incredibly humbling, but incredibly joy-giving as, as well when we fully understand that, like, again, like Tina's story, like a lot of our stories, the most freeing thing in the world, we understand that God actually loves us. He's not a puppet master. He's not applauding from the seats. Oh, oh, oh. He's much different than that. He, he's much more loving, much more evolved in your life than you think. 
Um, he is your everything. He's my everything. And this is uh, kind of what's going on here. So anyway, that was a huge bunny trail, kind of. So going back to this then, Genesis 11, th- this becomes a helpful commentary on what sin really is and what salvation is. You know, again, we might say God saves us from our sins and we'd be right, but we might also say, say God saves us from ourselves, <clears throat> which tells us further that the solution to our problems is not inside us. You guys follow the theological logic there? If he's saving us from ourselves, what does that tell us? The problem's not in you and me. Otherwise, he wouldn't save us from ourselves. He would save us from the small little few things you've done wrong 10 years ago and kind of like a little bit of polish on the side of the car. You just do this a little bit and say, oh, there you go. You were great before, but now you're, now you're perfect. And you kind of walk away. That's not the gospel. The gospel is brand new you. A complete redo. A complete start over. Resurrection. I mean, isn't it interesting here that God doesn't just speak to those building the tower and say, stop? It's one of my big questions with this passage I've always had. Is why doesn't he just, like, give them a chance, <laughs> you know, before the dispersion? Like, why not say, okay, guys, can you please stop doing this? It sounds kind of weird, but to say it that way. God, God probably wouldn't sound that way, but whatever. Can, can, that's part of the point, maybe. It sounds ridiculous. Can you please stop doing this, like, giving them a chance or commanding them? He doesn't, does he? Why do you think that is? God's not a jerk. He's the essence of love and goodness, so we rule that out, the jerk option. Well, what's the answer? The the only answer that makes sense really is because, well, one, he knows it's best. There's some mystery there. But I think right in the passage we see in the context here, the greater biblical context, they can't stop. They can't. They don't have it within them. We've already seen this come up a couple, well, once, well, actually more than that, but um, I'm going to mention a couple of things here to, to support this idea. One's in Genesis 4, we've seen with Cain. One is later with Israel and the law. But earlier in the story, if you were here for this or if you know the story, we saw that God, that the first murder happens. Cain murders his brother Abel. They're the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And as Cain's being tempted to do this, he's becoming increasingly jealous over Abel for various reasons I won't go into for time's sake today. Uh, God actually comes down to him. Remember what he says? God says to Cain, you must master your sin. You must master it. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. What happens right after that? Anybody? Yes. He murders his brother. Does the commandment or the request of God to Cain, master your sin, work? No. No. Does it ever ultimately work? (laughs) Read your Bibles. It's part of the story. It's part of what we're supposed to get here. Actually, later with Israel, when when more of the the substantive moral law is given by God through Moses to Israel later in the biblical story, it says a couple, well, there's a lot it says on these lines. I'm going to give you a couple short examples so you can see this. It says in Deuteronomy, And I forget if this is God directly or like God through Moses. Uh, Anyway, it says, the law, like the Ten Commandments, for example, is a witness against you, for you are rebellious and stubborn. In other words, you can't keep it. It's there to show you constantly this won't work. Because And and people in this context are actually saying, we can do it. And so Moses says, okay, this is a witness against you. Consider it that. 
so that when you, won't, when you don't keep it, and you won't, basically tomorrow or in the next two minutes here after I finish this little dialogue with you, um, it'll be this, this gross mirror kind of in front of you showing you your sins so that you'll look elsewhere for deliverance. Like back in Genesis 4 with Cain, remember what God does to him after the commandment fails? He shows him grace. He says, inexplicably, I'll mark you on the forehead and protect you from those that want to take your life because you took your brother's life. Where did that come from? It's completely out of left field. Grace, that's what saves. God just saying, I'm deciding to save you. I'm deciding to make you perfect, like Tina was saying. I'm deciding to, to cleanse you in my son's righteousness. I'm just deciding to do it. I'm going to work in the world in a way, so as you put your faith in me, that will be sufficient. So, oh, I also got to, forgot to mention Joshua 24. Joshua is Moses' successor, so uh, saying this not too long after the fact, he says this to Israel. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. You are not able to do it. He's saying this in context with the law. Do you guys know that it says this in the Bible? This is true for us as well. There's a little bit of a difference to a spirit-filled Christian, you know, but this is like our, our, all of our greater stories here. We're Christian or not. We've got to be careful with this language. Sometimes, you know, we put this on plaques in our home that says, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. It's like, ooh, careful with that. That, that, that was a command to, to, that was Israel saying that, and it didn't work out too well for them. It's a promise of people to God that couldn't be kept. You can't serve him, and I can't. We're too rebellious. He's holy. How can the imperfect satisfyingly serve and make happy the holy? How can that happen? Do you, do you, do you know? How can that occur? And the Bible is clear it can't. It's trying to like, end our speculation here. So we don't have to like beat ourselves over the head with it. The law doesn't work. Whether it's Genesis 4, Deuteronomy 31, Joshua 24, the commandment always fails. And so back to Genesis 11 then, something more drastic is required to change your life and save you and mine than the commandment. Something more drastic than just telling them to stop, or he would. Why doesn't he just say, stop, you guys? God's actions here aren't the actions of a teacher but a judge and a savior. It's the same with us in the, in the New Testament era. The gospel of Genesis 11 essentially tells us God saves us from ourselves, not just from a few bad things that we did when we were younger. He's basically interrupting our ongoing sin with action. It's incredibly good news here that he's doing this. They're, they're, and in the act of building the tower, God comes down and confuses the language. They don't stop first or you know, get a chance hearing his voice. It's just judgment but also that little bit of grace embedded like the yolk of the egg embedded in that in that judgment to free them from it so we would put it in these terms as new testament christians people that if we're well if we were to speak more prepositionally statement wise about it we would say this romans 5 8 but god shows his love for us in that while we were still sinning against him while we're still sinners while we're still building the tower with our amazingness Christ died for us. While we were still kings of our lives, queens of our lives, still attempting to do that, God interrupted that through a missionary, through a friend, through reading of the Bible, through realizing what the gospel truly is, through an ending of ourselves, through a type of a season of weakness and, and self-reflection. He interrupts while we were still sinning. 
and his solution is Christ's death. It's also actually, as you look at Jesus on the cross as well, um, in Mark 15, 29, I think sometimes too just about what he's saying. When Christ, on the cross, when Christ was dying on the cross, he was being actively rejected, ridiculed, and hated and murdered. And yet he's still extending grace and forgiveness. I think what, what Christ says from the cross tells us more, it's more, it more than sufficiently tells us what he came to do. It defines what he's doing on the cross. Mark 15, 29, again, those are, those are people who are passing by, derided him, wagging their heads. Um, again, it, does Christ teach morality from the cross before he dies? Are some of his final words, um, well, before I go, be sure to do this and live this way? Not at all. He's saying, he's, he's extending forgiveness to the thief on his right. He's trying to make sure his mom's taken care of. He's saying, it is finished. It's done. Everything I'm doing, this is sufficient. I'm dying for all of your sin. It's finished, never to be added to. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To express that he's dying, not just for our sin, but for the fact that we're exiled from God. So Jesus was separated from his Father like we are for us, in our place, so that we can, Ephesians 2.13, be brought back by the blood of Christ. Christ is not teaching morality from the cross. He's speaking salvation. And his death itself, then, is the way he's saving us. His blood's the remedy. So that God's solution, again, is not stop it, but I'll stop it. And so this is why Christians talk so much about, about the cross, why we need to be, why it's necessitated that we be. And so much about the resurrection is that we need a brand new life to be saved. We believe that God's actually starting over. He's actually raising us from the dead, not tweaking an already pretty good person into perfection. We're not really into behavior modification as Christians as much as we are Jesus himself. Goodness follows by his present spirit, no question. Uh, God gets glory in our good works, but in terms of what it means to be saved and the ongoing idea of salvation, what we think about, meditate on, bank on, go all in on, sing about, take communion in light of, sermon-wise, it's always, always about him. And that's why the, that's why the resurrection, if, if we consider ourselves to be resurrection believers and every Christian is or has to be or, or not. I mean, everything hinges on that. The resurrection says, I'm saving you from yourself, right? It, it's newness. It's, he says, I'm remaking you. Not just I'm dying for a few past sins, though there's some truth to that. He's saying, I'm actually remaking you and recreating you. So our hope's in the resurrection, not the law. Drastic measures, again, are being taken. So this, this is really hopeful uh, to, you know, to for Christians who still sin, <laughs> so you don't have to raise your hand, but if, if you're a Christian who still sins, I'll raise my hand. If you're a Christian who sins, this is good news. Because you might think, this is why our statement, our theology, Christ died for my sins, needs to be robust. What do you mean by that? When you hear, that, when you hear me say that or someone else or read that, when you think that, what comes to mind? What are you thinking? How big is that? Because that can be too small. Um, it's, it isn't too small, but it can be in our minds, just to be clear. It's, it, 
he did die for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He said it's finished on the cross. But what we, what we layer on top of that when we say he died to save me from myself is the truth that when he looks at us then, he sees someone perfect. He sees someone wrapped up in the righteousness of his son. He sees a newly created person, spiritually speaking. You have been past tense raised with Christ if you believe in him. Apply that to the way you think and live is the call in myself, the way we think and live. So we're thinking in that sense about the resurrection deal. That's hard work. And you'll, you and I have doubts about that every day, which makes it even harder. When the Bible says, put on the new self, it's resurrection language. And the Bible says, believe that you've been raised. And the Bible says, you no longer live if you're, if you're a Christian. You've died, and the new self is raised in Christ. And he, he is the only one that lives now. He's alive in you. So our sin's no longer a threat. You see the good news here? If, if all this is true and you sin as a Christian, it's not a threat because you're not thinking, well, he wiped me clean. This might be a little bit more of a traditional Roman Catholic view, but um, there's versions of that, so don't quote me on that. It's just, I know it's partially true, at least. Christ washes me from my past sins, but now it's up to me to live a righteous life now. I mean, does that, like, scare you to death? That's not the gospel. But that's what a lot of people's versions of Christianity is. The gospel says, I've died for all sins, all time, and now I've actually, not just, more, not just that, I've brought you into my resurrection, so you're a brand new person. You're brand new, without sin in God's eyes. He's forgotten it all, and he cherishes you like a father, like a loving father. You're adopted into his family. Now you're called a child, a son or a daughter of God, not a servant anymore. It's like, I know I'm dating myself here, but um, all you Seinfeld fans from like 80 years ago. Um, do you guys remember that episode of George Costanza where he talked about uh, New George? Yeah, where's Chris Thompson? Chris, you know, yeah. Right? Isn't that what he's, I forget the whole context. I just remember that. New George. New George is going to do this. and Old George, but New George is going to, anyway. It's kind of like that. Ugh, you know. I think about those, I'll just say, I'll just say this. I think about that, those, myself, in those terms a lot. It's, and this, it's actually a pretty helpful sin-killing thought is old Chris would have gone there like a sheep to the slaughter and entertained that thought or did that thing or, or didn't do that thing. And I still do sometimes, and I come back to Jesus and say, forgive me. But a lot of times the more empowering thought is not, I'm not supposed to do it, you know, the more power, empowering thought is put on the new self. I'm not, that, this is new Chris now. Old Chris would have done that, but now new Chris is because I'm in Christ and he's alive in me, he's died for me. I'm compelled by the thought of that, but also the reality of that. That's, it's very different. It's a different kind of thought. It's a resurrection-centered thought. It's a God saving me from myself kind of thought. Um, I'm dead. And now it's just Christ who's alive in me, making me brand new. But, hear, but just hear this, your sin is no longer a threat. I just want you guys to know that today, because I know a lot of you are bringing in stuff today, and you all, as you always do, I always do. If this is true, if God's saving us from ourselves as well, and the resurrection's a thing, then your sin, whatever, whatever, this is not a free pass to sin, to be clear. It's just, it's saying your sin, your future sin is no longer a threat because you're brand new. You're not your old self trying to be better. That's the gospel. 
The Bible says just believe in that and you're saved. Hold on to it for dear life, even if just 10% of you believes, just like 90% of you is questioning. Hold on to it for dear life and just hope above all hopes that every week when you come back here or open your Bible throughout the week or go to community group, that that same gospel is true. And it is. It always will be. Because God never changes. And this book's closed. It's done. So final just a word here. Either way, I mean, as we see Jesus as the solution to this passage, but the fulfillment of its themes as well, either way we affirm this. The solution to our separation from God is not building a tower. It's not going up to him. It's not the overcoming of addiction. It's not lots of prayer. It's not caring for the poor. It's not going to purgatory and just working hard down there for a while before we get to come back up. It's not fasting. It's God coming down to us, period. This is the ultimate coming down. This is the good news is God came down in Genesis 11 to judge. There would be another time in history later on when God would come down again, not to judge, but to bless. When he would come down and and destroy all of our towers and show us this picture of his son on a cross and say, this is the way. This This is how you get in. This is how you make it. This is how much I love you. This is how much I forgive you. This is the extent I'm willing to go to save you. And there's no, no, you can't go further. You can't go farther. So it wars against our pride. It breeds humility, which is what God wants, of course. And so, but this is the way we get the humility, not just by God saying, be humble. We get it through the, the lens of the cross. And we cling, again, for dear life onto the fact that this is, this is God's posture towards us. God, forgive us. God, thank you for loving us. And God, save us. Is, is that the only, the only response really to that? So let me pray for us. God, thanks uh, today again for your great, great, great love for us in Christ. Thank you for dying for our sins, for the gospel of Genesis 11 that reminds us that you are a God that comes down. And that can be a very scary thing, a fearful thing. But thank you that the last time you came down, there are two coming downs of God, really, you could say, in the scriptures. One is for judgment, the latter one in history is to pardon and to show grace and to bless those who trust in you and who believe in you for the forgiveness of their sins. So thank you. That's the last word. Jesus, you are the final word. There's no other word. There's no like, oh, maybe there's going to be another Babel event uh, where God reacts differently to our sin. The cross is the ultimate reaction of God to our sin, and he's giving us a way out. Uh, He's washing us. He's saving us. He's showing us love. Um, Whatever we've done, the cross says, I'll take it, I'll absorb it for you. So in my eyes, it's dealt with. Shame, guilt, distant feelings from God, not measuring up, even our efforts to be good, um, dying for all of that, and so that Christ might be all and in all. And um, so help us to respond with this song, God, and to leave here freed up, tripped up maybe, but freed up uh, by that grace-filled thought. In Christ's name, amen.